You're listening to MuniCast, the podcast that discusses municipal leadership. Season five of MuniCast is brought to you by SASTEL's innovation and collaboration team. SASTEL can help you sort through the noise to create solutions that add value quickly, whether it's reducing your environmental footprint, driving investment, community development, or just saving money. Contact your SASTEL account manager to find out more. MuniCast is hosted by SUMA, the voice of Saskatchewan's hometowns. I'm Stephanie, SUMA's Education and Events Coordinator, and in Season 5 of MuniCast, we are discussing how truth and reconciliation relates to municipalities. On this episode, I'm joined by Mason Stott, Advocacy and Legal Services Advisor with SUMA, for a conversation with John Stefaniuk, Practitioner of Municipal Law with the Manitoba law firm Thompson Dorfman Sweatman, LLP. John engages in a broad practice which includes emphasis on municipal law. He has experience in municipal approvals, taxation and assessment, and business acquisitions. He appears regularly before government licensing bodies and administrative tribunals, including the Manitoba Clean Environment Commission and Municipal Board, municipal councils, provincial legislative committees, and in all levels of court in Manitoba and in the federal court in connection with environmental, resource, regulatory municipal, and property issues. It has been almost eight years since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, or TRC, issued its report documenting the experiences of about 150,000 students who attended Canada's residential school system and the accompanying calls to action. A section of the calls to action specifically outlined calls directed towards government, with some of those calls relating to all levels of government, including municipalities. John has outlined the calls that apply directly to municipal governments and has reviewed how municipalities of all sizes can uphold their responsibility to work towards reconciliation. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. Well, thank you for having me today, Stephanie and Mason. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada has outlined 94 calls to action with a portion of those calls directed towards government, some to all levels of government, including municipalities. Can you give me a brief overview of the calls that apply specifically to municipal governments? Yeah, sure, Stephanie. And I'm going to refer to them by uh, by number, uh, as set out in the calls to action. So number 40 is to create Aboriginal-specific victim programs and services with appropriate valuation mechanisms. Number 43 is to fully adopt and implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as a framework for reconciliation. And and that uh, declaration is often referred to as UNDRIP, the abbreviation. Number 57 is to provide education to public servants on the history of Aboriginal peoples, including the history and legacy of residential schools, on UNDRIP, on treaties and Aboriginal rights, on Indigenous law, and on Aboriginal Crown relations. Number 75 is uh, more specific and won't apply to as many municipalities, but it's the ongoing identification, documentation, maintenance, commemoration, and protection of residential school cemeteries or other sites at which residential school children were buried. And with that is 76, which is adopt strategies of documenting, maintaining, commemorating, and protecting residential school cemeteries. A 77 is, is also more specific to communities that have had residential school experiences. 
and that is to identify and collect copies of all records relevant to the history and legacy of the residential school system and to provide these to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. And number 87 and 88 are, are more youth focused and more general. And 87 is to provide public education that tells the national story of Aboriginal athletes in history. And 88 is to ensure long-term Aboriginal athlete development and growth and continued support for the North American Indigenous Games, including funding to host the games. And coincidentally, the North American Indigenous Games are taking place uh, as we record this in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And not every call to action necessarily applies to every municipality. And uh, there are several calls to action, though, that are universal. And there's nothing, for example, to prevent all municipalities from ensuring their, their employees receive culturally appropriate training on the history of Aboriginal peoples in Canada. Recognizing, as you did there, that not every call to action necessarily applies to all municipalities, in your opinion, what are some steps that towns, villages, resort villages, and northern municipalities can start taking towards addressing some of these calls? I think first and foremost is education. And that means uh, education not only of council members, but education of municipal employees at all levels of the um, municipality. And that's from the chief administrative officer all the way to the clerk and to the equipment operator. And I think the second thing is that there is a need to analyze and determine what specific calls to action should apply to your municipality. You know, it's not every call to action is necessarily going to apply. If you're in a community that does not have a connection with the residential school system, or does not have had, hasn't had residents, uh, of the community who are uh, involved in the residential school system, um, which are which would be few in these days because there's so many people were uh, affected by residential schools, but you know has not had a residential school within the municipality. Obviously, some of those uh, considerations are not going to apply. But last, most importantly, I think the it has to be recognized by the municipality, by the by the council, by the administration that uh, reconciliation is a journey. It's not a, uh, a one-shot effort. Uh, I think that's something that's been said by Senator Marie Sinclair as well. And it requires an ongoing commitment by the entire organization. When municipalities are thinking about developing educational initiatives, uh, policies, and when they're on this journey of reconciliation, are there legal considerations that municipal governments should be aware of? Well, Mason, I think most of the calls to action don't involve specific legal considerations. In fact, in my view, some of the calls to action, like training and education, are likely to have a positive effect and in that they could reduce incidents of discrimination and harassment and also be supportive of respectful workplace policies. There are other uh, calls to action that might be a little more technical in nature. So such as adopting and implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, whether that's done by way of formal resolution or, or other action or policy is something for a municipality to consider. Uh, several provincial governments and the government of Canada have adopted UNDRIP and have made commitments to 
examine laws and regulations and make sure that they're consistent with UNDRIP. In some circumstances, municipal actions may have impacts on Indigenous uh, rights. Um, they're more often considerations for federal and provincial governments and form part of the consultation and accommodation process. Uh, and, you know, some of the UNDRIP provisions are not without controversy. So, for example, UNDRIP calls for uh, free, full, and informed consent on the part of Indigenous peoples if any of their land or treaty rights are affected by government action. And that could include development or could include policy. You know, does that square with what our Supreme Court of Canada has said in terms of the requirement to consult with in Indigenous people and that uh, the consultation process does not give a veto? And how are those things going to be reconciled? To what extent does this affect municipalities? Well, uh, to the extent that municipalities engage in development, they engage in projects, perhaps some of their planning and uh, land use activities may have effects on Indigenous people or traditional Indigenous rights, then in applying UNDRIP, then perhaps there is an obligation to uh, seek out participation, uh, consultation, and consent in certain circumstances. Thanks for that. Uh, and I, I know that you were just talking about uh, the Aboriginal and treaty rights in Canada, but are there other effects that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action have on existing Aboriginal and treaty rights? Uh, I don't think that the calls to action have the effect of modifying uh, Aboriginal or treaty rights. Uh, you know, these rights are already there, they exist, and they're recognized in the Constitution Act. I think the calls to action can be viewed as calling for recognition and understanding of those rights. And um, taking more often an Indigenous perspective when looking at those rights. There is a tendency to take uh, the perspective of, of those, of the newcomers, if you want to call them that, or the colonizers, depending on the perspective. And uh, uh, so each party may have a different view of the history, meaning, and effect of, of some of those treaties and the extent of uh, of Indigenous rights. And uh, by looking at the other side and uh, examining different perspectives, I think it uh, results in a better, um, better communication, better understanding, a better working relationship. I really like that point that you highlighted there about how the calls to action are more of a recognition of the rights that are already there and don't necessarily have any changes on the existing, on the existing ones. Within the calls to action, there are several categories or topics that the calls fall under. Are there any that aren't directly related to municipalities that you feel would be beneficial for municipalities to be engaging in? There are a number of calls to action. They're very broad, and many of those are focused on other levels of government or, or non-government agencies, organizations. But, you know, when looking at the broad powers conferred on uh, municipalities under municipal legislation, including sort of the heads of spheres and heads of jurisdiction and the natural person powers and the uh, general health and welfare powers under municipal legislation. Municipalities have uh, a lot of leeway in what they can do if they choose to do it. And, you know, some of the areas uh, that are 
included in the calls to action are education. Uh, now this may be workshops, it may be promotion of indigenous issues, it may be opportunities to share about indigenous culture uh, during community events. Uh, there is uh, child care and child welfare. You know, are there policies or programs in the municipality that can uh, better address some of the needs of Indigenous members of the community? Uh, housing, to the extent that communities uh, are involved in providing or encouraging housing development, is there appropriate attention being paid to the uh, needs and and the history of indigenous uh, peoples. Uh, health, uh, language and culture. You know, this might be as simple as having opportunities for sharing of cultural events, cultural experiences, um, building that more into the fabric of uh, what is done, recognition of uh, uh, National Indigenous Peoples Day, Orange Shirt Day, those sorts of things that, uh, uh, better recognize and identify uh, with uh, Canada's history and, and the uh, treatment of Indigenous peoples. Injustice in, in uh, and equality in the legal system, um, there may be opportunities to provide supports at the municipal level. Um, and in youth, uh, there are specific mentions about youth and athletic uh, activities, but also you know, what other things can be done to support youth and uh, not just Indigenous youth, but all youth in the community and perhaps providing them with uh, better resources in relation to the um, history of Indigenous peoples in Canada. And, and last, business. Uh, there are specific calls to action that apply to businesses. You know, part of that is also the educational component. But if municipalities can help businesses uh, meet the calls to action, whether it's by joint programming or encourage businesses to uh, be proactive, then it's it's good for the business. It's good for the community. It's good for the business. And what's good for businesses is generally good for the health of the community. Across the province, SASTEL is engaged with many different municipal organizations who seek to innovate Contact your SAS Telecount Manager to learn more about some of these initiatives and how they can help your municipality today. Uh, building off of uh, what you're talking about for justice system improvements, and just going back to call to action number 40, which is to create in collaboration with Aboriginal people, adequately funded and accessible Aboriginal specific victim programs and services. Uh, with appropriate evaluation mechanisms. Um, I know that courts are separate from government, but are there things that municipalities can do to further Aboriginal specific uh, justice programs, such as restorative justice or alternative measures in the court system? Well, it's gonna depend on the municipality and, and many provincial governments have these programs in place. So it may be a question of working with these programs. Uh, not all municipalities have uh, systems, not every community, I should say, and it's got nothing to do with the municipality, but not everywhere in every province are the systems put in place to assist in things like restorative justice, where uh, an individual who's charged with an offense might have an opportunity to uh, 
uh, ask for, for forgiveness or make amends to someone that, that's been wronged when an offense has been committed rather than you know, suffer incarceration. And oftentimes that's seen as being a better solution both to the victim and to the uh, offender and for the community at large. You know, if, are there things that can be done to support those sorts of programs and activities at the community level? Uh, can uh, committees or activities be set up and supported? Uh, are there facilities available for these uh, activities to take place? You know, that's something that has to be really looked at a, at a community by community uh, level, really. As you've talked about, these categories are so broad, but they municipalities uh, interact with them in, in a variety of ways. What are some of the challenges that you've seen municipalities face when addressing some of these calls? I think the, the first and perhaps the biggest challenge is, is just owning the issue and understanding why this is the business of the municipality in the first place. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's difficult when you look at the history of municipalities in the prairies. And uh, especially prior to amalgamations in more recent years, many municipalities had as their main concern is, is making sure the roads were maintained and the and drainage was maintained. And, and that was a primary concern. And now to shift gears and to say that it's also a responsibility to look at and train your people and be concerned with you know, the history of uh, residential schools and Indigenous peoples in Canada is, is sometimes it's not uh, the simplest transition, but it's uh, it's a necessary thing. And uh, I think it's also similar to the case when you look at the history of settlement in the prairies. Uh, many, most of the people in the prairies came to Canada after much of much of the uh, history of Indigenous people in Canada had already taken place including uh, interactions with the uh, government of the day and whether they're viewed as newcomers or colonizers or simply as people who've come to share the land. It's, it's more difficult to uh, tell people or get people to understand why this is also a concern because as, as Canadians, we all have a shared history regardless of where we come from. We have a shared history here as Canadians, and that's uh, reconciliation is an important part of that. So once the municipality decides, yes, this is our issue, then the next hurdle, I think, is deciding where to start. Because um, how do you go about, about eating an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. And it's deciding where to take that first bite and how do you start and uh, what are the actions that take place? And in my view, I think the first action is education. So education of employees and education of uh, of council. And I think from there, once there's a better understanding of what these issues are about, it makes it better, better and easier to understand what is intended by the calls to action and makes it perhaps somewhat more intuitive as the kind of actions that can be taken uh, to, to meet those calls. Third thing, I think, is what can we do in-house and where do we need to seek outside assistance and outside advice, whether it's through our associations and some of the programming that's uh, provided there, or do we, do we have to hire someone to help us through this process? And, you know, that's a, a task that has to be 
undertaken. And rather than have this as just one more thing that sits on the corner of this chief administrative officer's desk and, and other duties as assigned, uh, along with chief privacy officer and who knows what else they may be responsible for, the decision has to be made as to whether or not outside resources should be sought and you know what the appropriate level of that uh, consultation would be. Then last, once the, the resources in, are in place and there's been some education and council has some momentum, is, is moving to concrete action. So let's actually implement some measures that are going to satisfy some of the calls to action. And what are we going to implement? And who are we going to partner with? And how are we going to uh, seek out the advice of Indigenous people in our municipality or, or neighborhoods to get their input to make sure we're not going the wrong direction? And then evaluating the results and uh, and tweaking as necessary. That, it was really great point that you made about how municipalities are already so overrun with all the other things that they need to take care of making sure the roads are are working well that the there's water and especially for some of the ones where some of those things are becoming a lot more challenging it can be difficult to add one more thing onto their plate and caos are already extremely busy and don't necessarily have the time to do that while that is the case, it's also a very valuable thing to do. So there are quite a few challenges. But are you aware of any examples of successful municipal and First Nations uh, agreements or relationships in relation to the uh, Truth and Reconciliation? Yeah, I think there's a lot out there. And they apply to various size municipalities. Of course, we can all go to the City of Toronto website and see all the things that are going on there, but that's not going to be a fit for every municipality. Uh, and uh, you know, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, the AMO, has a lot of resources available online as being one organization that, that has a number of uh, examples. And some of these examples um, are, for, for instance, uh, the Treaty 20 First Nations and the Greater Peterborough area. So they've got a partnership approach to uh, First Nation municipal collaboration. So they brought together not just the First Nation, but also two townships, a regional government and an economic development corporation together. So it doesn't have to be a municipality going on its own. There's an example of multiple uh, municipalities, municipal, uh, sorry, urban and uh, and regional collaborating with a uh, group of First Nations under a particular treaty to establish a, a partnership. So in that circumstance, two of the First Nations now sit as partners on the uh, county of Peterborough's uh, uh, development Plan Technical Advisory Committee, as an example. They've co-organized educational events around the 200th anniversary of Treaty 20. So that brought members of the community and uh, members of the municipality together to uh, understand the meaning and significance of uh, that treaty. And they've prov provided and produced uh, a, a partnership video. The uh, City of Sioux Lookout is not a large city, uh, but uh, it's formed a mayor's committee on truth and reconciliation. And uh, they attend meetings of the chiefs of the Ontario Assembly of First Nations and uh, have some representation there as, as observers. 
and they've had a partnership with uh, Laxul First Nation. In Alberta, there's the Lesser Slave Lake Region Tri-Council. So again, it's a, it's a regional government, uh, and uh, it's uh, formed a corporation to build a legacy center. And that's a, that's a, that's a regional government where there's going to be a um, higher uh, Indigenous population. And so uh, as, as a community development project, they're building a multi-purpose hall for conferences and events and a daycare and office space with leases to community uh, organizations. And it'll also serve as an educational center for the region. As, as an example of a community that's not very small, but not always considered urban, you know, Canmore in Alberta, uh, decided it was going to advance 15 specific calls to action. And so uh, they've done things like incorporating, incorporating Indigenous books, art, and imagery into public spaces and social programs, installing signage that highlights the history of Indigenous people in the Bow Valley, uh, hosting blanket ceremonies for council staff, and hosting summer programs on Indigenous culture, Indigenous history. Not all those things are hugely expensive either. Uh, you know, I guess building a community hall can be, but that's got a, that would have a particular focus, focusing and, and providing uh, historic plaques and uh, recognizing uh, cultural and historic events that are important to Indigenous people in, in the area are, are some things that can be done much more easily. As you were speaking there, it reminded me of uh, an example actually from Saskatchewan. There was a, um, in the village of Laird, there uh, was a reserve for the young Chippewan First Nation, uh, Reserve 107. And it's a really interesting story about how the, the land was actually transferred specifically between the municipality and the First Nation. And there's a documentary on that for anybody listening who's interested in learning more about it. Um, but if you are looking for other examples of that too, there on top of what John just offered there, there is that example as well. You know, one thing I'll, I'll mention too, is that uh, um, many uh, councils and uh, many organizations in general are starting their meetings with a, a land acknowledgement. Some, including one that I'm involved with, I'm a, a board member of, is moving away from just simply reciting a land acknowledgement, saying that we're acknowledged that we're on the ancestral land of Treaty Number One and the land of the Métis people. Take 10 or 15 minutes and have someone, whether on their board or uh, someone to come from outside, and explain a bit of history. And so instead of just reciting a land acknowledgement, I might come to a meeting prepared to speak or have someone from a community come, an Indigenous community come to speak for 10 or 15 minutes about, you know, in the Manitoba uh, experience, uh, how the uh, Peguis First Nation was, was moved off of the fertile farmland around Selkirk and, and, and up away into the Interlake region. Uh, into uh, less productive land and uh, the effects that that had on the community. Experiences like that that really bring to home uh, some of the events and occurrences that uh, were experienced by First Nations people and, and have had 
repercussions that continue to this day. So I noticed that when we're talking about reconciliation and education and ensuring Indigenous voices are included in municipal governance, um, I'm wondering what can communities do to allow their residents to get to know one another uh, in a meaningful way, uh, such as I think on your website is mentioning a Costco in uh, Sutina First Nation in Calgary open to get bring people who are not usually on a reserve onto their reserve in terms of relationship building. Yeah, and that's a kind of a unique situation because of the proximity of the First Nation to the, the rest to the city of Calgary. It's not always the same uh, First Nations, even where there are uh, urban reserves uh, sometimes. But there can be a whole raft of either formal or less formal uh, opportunities to connect and build relationships with uh, Indigenous organizations and groups. Alberta Municipality uh, has a, uh, a website that's uh, dedicated, uh, has a publication dedicated towards the uh, uh, application by municipalities of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action that uh, came out in 2021. It provides examples there. Uh, there's also a concept called co-production, which refers to municipal and Indigenous policy engagement to uh, increase input in municipal policy making and planning processes. So it involves bringing people from the Indigenous community into the decision making process at early stages to identify issues and perspectives that should be taken into account uh, during the rest of the process and, and allowing them to contribute in an equitable manner during the whole municipal planning process. Those programs and processes are also shown to produce better results for, for communities. So you've already told us a lot about uh, various resources that are available from Ontario and Alberta. Are there any others that uh, you were wanting to share with our audience? Yeah, I think the Federation of Canadian Municipalities did its own guide called Pathways to Reconciliation. And uh, although it's focused on uh, cities predominantly, uh, it's available on the uh, Federation website and, and talks about uh, a broad scope of reconciliation divided into uh, three pathways. And one is fostering communities, alliances, and hope. Second is advancing awareness and recognizing rights. That's a would be part of the education component. And then the third component is improving health and wellness, which is uh, something that's important to all members of the community. Apart from being a resource itself, it's got a large bibliogra bibliography of other resources and links uh, that uh, take you to the works of other uh, member municipalities. So there, there is a lot out there. Uh, in fact, it can be overwhelming at times uh, and that's sometimes where one has to take a step back and say, okay, well, uh, maybe it's time for me to uh, talk to someone about this and, and, and help get some direction. And uh, rather than uh, drinking water from the fire hose and trying to find out what it is that we're going to do to try and narrow things down. And, and sometimes it's a matter of attending events by, put on by organizations like yours that are focused on uh, reconciliation activities and help provide municipalities with roadmaps 
to to get where they need to go. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. This has been a really engaging conversation. And for those that that are listening, I will include links to the resources that we've talked about in the descriptions of this podcast. So take a look there if you're looking for any of those. And John, do you have any final comments that you'd like to share with our audience before we end off today? No, I really appreciate this opportunity. And uh, I I would encourage uh, municipalities and, and representatives of municipalities to take a look at this. And I think by participating in um, addressing these calls to action, uh, everyone will receive uh, an education. You'll learn something. Experiences should prove to be positive experiences, not only for Indigenous members of the communities and surrounding communities, but also for the rest of the community as well. And uh, it builds uh, stronger communities, stronger relationships, and uh, better decision making. This brings us to the end of another episode of Municast. Stay tuned for episode two, season five, airing in August. We hope that you've enjoyed listening into these conversations as much as we've enjoyed having them. Is there someone that you would like to hear from on Municast? Let us know by emailing education at suma.org.